Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 11. You don't need many bells and whistles, but if you got livestock out there uh, grazing grass properly, it, uh, you'll be able to do this for a long time. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. On today's episode, we have Scott Hauk of Sacred Song Farm. We spend quite a bit of time talking about grazing hogs, but we also cover grazing sheep and cattle and forming a flirt, as well as other aspects of managing your forages and the fencing required. Before we get to Scott, if you've not subscribed to our podcast, we encourage you to subscribe. Also, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you like the episode, share it with your friends. Also, leave us a review. Let's talk to Scott. Scott, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Yeah, so along with my wife, Margaret, and our daughter, River, we farm and ranch here in Mancus, Colorado. The name of our farm is Sacred Song Farm, and uh, we're a first-generation family farm and ranch living to create happy, healthy, and strong humans while raising food in harmony with nature. And so we're just really committed to soil health and human health. That's our direction and our kind of North Star. Very good. Now, in Colorado, tell us about, um, are you on the flatlands? You're near the mountains. Where are you in Colorado? We are in a uh, high mountain valley located at about 7,000 feet. The uh, town of Mancus is uh, just east of Mesa Verde National Park here in the Four Corners region. And um, our farm goes from about 7,000 feet up to about 8,500 feet on the 360 acres of owned ground. So there's a, we're right up against Menifee Mountain here. So it's a, some rugged terrain, oh, but yes. we love it. Very nice. And it does sound like it would be. What's your environment there, or not not so much your environment, but your climate like there? Are you on a north or south facing slope? So the the farm faces east. Um, okay. And we are we get about uh, anywhere from twelve to sixteen inches of precipitation total precip, including snowfall. Um, this year has been quite a bit less. It's the third driest year on record actually. And so we were in, a, Oh wow. we've had about uh, six and a half inches of total precip year to date, but we did get some snow today. So we're feeling good. Oh, very good. I think that snow's headed my way, but it's not supposed to stay as snow when it gets to me. Hey, we'll take it any which way, right? <laughs> right, right. When is your last frost and, and first freeze usually? Well, we can get a first freeze um, uh, really into the end of August, early September. Um, the nighttime temps being, you know, uh, right on the edge of the desert here can dip down quite quickly uh, in the fall there. And then the last freeze uh, can happen uh, quite late as well. I mean, we'll have uh, freezing temperatures sometimes into May and June um, and snow into May may uh often so oh yes so that gives you a short growing season yes sir it does and uh yes but allows us to stockpile quite a bit of forage which 
keeps its nutritional quality um, being a dry environment. That forage keeps it real good oh, yes. nutritional quality throughout the year. So uh, we can keep grazing as long as there's not two foot of snow, which we do. Very good. What kind of forages do you have? Uh, the irrigated ground is primarily brome grass, alfalfa, a little bit of Timothy and orchard grass. Um, starting to get some clovers coming in, uh, which is a good sign. And um, the dry ground is uh, more of the native perennials, the crested wheat, western wheat, uh, Indian rice grass, um, and then your sagebrush, your oak brush, these sorts of things. Very nice. And on your farm, you have a few different species of livestock? Yes, sir. We uh, raise beef, lamb, pork, and poultry. And uh, we try to utilize and let these animals all express their instinctive behaviors. And um, just really going for uh, that farm ecosystem. Tell us a little bit about how you manage your livestock on, on your farm. So we try, like I said, to really be as true to nature as possible and to look to nature for the template, if you will, for how we're going to raise these animals. And so uh, the cattle are out on open ground primarily for the vast majority of the year. Uh, we're moving them daily. Uh, the sheep are out on open ground, uh, uh, moving either with or behind the cattle, um, moving them daily. And then you got the poultry, uh, the laying hens moving behind all them to do the parasite control, uh, a la Joel Salatin and Polyface Farm. They've really created and really been able to, at scale, um, get those patterns uh, on the conventional and the commodity productive production model, you know, to be able to raise food in this way. Yes. And, uh, the hogs we raise in the woods, pigs are woodland creatures. So we raise them in the shade of the pinion and the juniper trees and the oak brush and let them do what a pig does, which is root and wallow. And, um, they really, there's nothing better than seeing a group of pigs sleeping in the dappled shade of the pinion and juniper forest that we have here up on the Hills, uh, that go up to the mountain to the east of us and it's a beautiful thing and it once since we started doing that about three years ago we will we will never look back it is uh it seems to fit quite nicely with our environment oh very good are the hogs in permanent pasture or are they rotated as well so we're using polywire two strands of polywire and we move them uh every week to 10 days uh we'll give oh yes a, a group of 30 to 40 hogs uh two to three acre area and um, just keep them moving. And uh, we've started to see a lot more understory growth. Um, and anytime we do get some moisture, there's pretty instant germination. And we've been seeing a lot more brome grass uh, in that, which is lying in that latent seed bank. Um, and just as waiting for the opportunity for that water to collect in the little um, micro ponds, if you will, where a pig puts his snout oh, and yes. digs around. and in our arid environment where a lot of that ground gets hard soil capped in between trees, uh, getting the pigs in there to break it up and then getting them off it to prepare it for rain. You see a lot of really good germination and it's, um, moving the landscape in the right direction. It's good to see. Oh, I'm sure it is. So you move them every seven to 10 days on a few acres. How long before you come back to that area? So they're there just for in that two to three acre paddock, just for one time and during the whole growing season. And, oh yes, and so yes. we're giving them, uh, and then I uh, 
try to give it a 16 to 18 month rest. And I do that by um, starting them at opposite ends in, alter- in alternating years. So in one end, I'll start them at the north end and move them to the south end of about a 30 acre patch of woods that we have uh, with permanent fencing on either side, and then use the poly wire as the ladder runs, if you will. And, oh, yes. Um, and then the next year, I'll start them at the south end and move them north. So that allows us to get that 16 to 18 month rest period. Um, but like with anything, this is nature is so dynamic. And so we've got to, with this drought that we're in, um, which uh, I don't like to talk about drought very much. It's just, you know, it's the, it's the way that our environment is going. And so we as farmers and ranchers have to adapt to that. Doing too much complaining doesn't do us much good. So uh, we're actually in the process of getting another 30 to 40 acres fence so that we can, if necessary, increase those rest periods even longer. Oh, yes. Yes. We had a, a Marcos Jeffries on episode nine talking about his drought in Mexico and, and how long they've stretched out the rest periods. It's crucial. It really goes back to we are trained in holistic management and uh, permaculture and the permaculture principle of observe and interact is really kind of the operating system, if you will, for humans that are trying to be in first generation farmers. You know, we're we're kind of learning a lot as we go. And it's the this whole six year process of, of farming and ranching has just been one big learning experience and will continue to be, I'm sure. So we're really committed to just uh taking what the land and what mother nature gives us and not trying to force anything on her and, and, um, using our senses to, to see what we can do. Very good. I want to come back to the hogs, but I want to ask you about what brought you to farming being a first generation. You weren't raised on a farm. No, sir. I got, uh, quite inspired. Um, uh, my uncle, uh, in his forties moved out to the country and got some sheep and, I really loved the physical nature of that work and being around the livestock, the animal husbandry aspect. He's got a great gift for uh, being around his his sheep and his ewes and assisting them at birth with with need if need be. And for lack of a better term, the energetics of, if you will, you know, moving livestock and animal husbandry is, husbandry is very much about how do we carry ourselves in our own internal uh, our internal landscape, if you will, you know, our uh, our mood, our um, ability to stay calm, to to work with these animals in a way where they want to be around us, as opposed to go running off from us. Right. And yes. So he really inspired me. And my wife and I met in college. We started gardening together eight years ago. We had our first garden together in college, and ever since then, we both kind of found a deep passion and a love for just trying to return to the natural way of being. You know, trying to return to the process of growing our own food and, um, and being in touch with natural cycles. And so we traveled around quite a bit. We went to Peru and farmed at 10,000 feet there where the only piece of steel on that farm was the plow behind a big bowl, uh, growing beans and, uh, potatoes. And then we moved to Southwest Wisconsin where we were on a farm called new forest farm, uh, owned by the shepherds, Mark and Jen shepherd, which is kind of a permaculture Mecca. It's a 110 acre food forest and we raised beef cattle and hogs there. And that's where we got back into livestock up until that time. We've been doing a lot of plants, a lot of vegetables and oh, fruits yes. and flowers, medicinal herbs and these things. And really got back into livestock there in Wisconsin. And when we moved down here to Southwest Colorado, that's, we'd kind of found our uh, calling, if you will, what we, what we really wanted to commit ourselves to doing. And so um, here we are. 
Very good. Sounds like a wonderful journey thus far and very wide ranging as well. It has been, and it's been full of full of a lot of different lessons. I mean, this the process of grazing grass, you know, the focus of this podcast and this conversation is really kind of, you know, every day you're going out moving those animals, you learn more about yourself than you really do anything else. At least I have. <laughs> yes. It's it, the responsibility and the 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 humility of interacting with nature in this way and interacting with the animals, especially when you're doing, um, not to sit all farming and ranching is this way, but when you try to go down the regenerative path of moving animals all the time, it forces you into a position to really realize that you're working with nature and working against her is going to only set you back further because there's not too many inputs or too much machinery that can, can bust you out of any, any problem you get in. So we really have realized that the farm seems to reflect what's going on inside us. You know, for me, as, as oh, a rancher, yes. I go out and I see uh, if there's something going on that I don't like, I, I, I've learned to kind of look inside myself and, and um, do some reflection because that's, that's where the issue really is. And once I get that settled, then I can um, get the farm back in, uh, back in working order, you know, and yes. so um, the two are connected. Very interesting journey. I want to jump back to the hogs because uh, I haven't talked to very many people uh, rotating hogs or doing much with hogs. So are you running sows or are you buying feeders and raise them up to fat hogs? How are you doing it? Well, we are in an area where not many folks are raising hogs. And yes. um, so getting our supply of uh, wiener pigs has been quite challenging and we've we we've had we started out with some sows and that's a whole nother enterprise you know keeping sows on deep bedding oh, yes. uh throughout the winter uh breeding them keeping boars separate from everybody there's nothing more um there's nothing more motivated than a, a boar let me tell you and so <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that's um from just a, a management standpoint, it, it's it's a whole nother enterprise, and you have to see it that way. And from a, a cash flow standpoint, all these things. Oh yeah. So we went to in the last couple of years just buying in uh, feeder pigs, but that supply has um, our, the demand for our pork has grown uh, quite quickly, and um, our ability to raise quite a bit of, of um, pork. We finish we finished about fifty hogs this year, and the sky's the limit. You know it. it, it Thank God we're sold out and we oh, and, yes. and folks love the product and we're so grateful for that and we're uh, humbled by it. So we're in the process now of building back up the uh, sow herd. Uh, we've got one boar and six sows and we'll be um, both buying in feeder pigs and also raising up some of our own stock. And so um, we're excited for a new challenge and happy about it. It sounds exciting. Uh, one thing you mentioned there was about you know, considering that breeding hog herd as a separate enterprise than your growing pigs. One thing Walt Davis talks about in How to Not Go Broke Ranching was make sure you look at those enterprises. You may be going broke as a farm, but there may be enterprises in there doing great. So, yes, you have to keep those separate. But at the same time, you've got to realize if you can get feeder pigs available when you need them. Now, as you talk about your hogs and your, your boars and sows, do you have a certain breed you're going with? Yes, sir. We raise uh, Cooney and Mangalitsis. Both of those breeds actually have interesting stories. They're uh, some rarer breeds, 
The mangalitsa has come to fame. Some folks call it the Kobe beef of pork. It's just incredibly uh, high quality fat content, high quality marbling and um, just gorgeous pork. And those pigs are from Hungary. The mangalitsas are from Hungary originally, and they're actually the closest genetic line to the wild European boar that's been domesticated. Oh, okay. And and the Kuni Kunis are originally from New Zealand, but even by way of, of Southeast Asia, they're a lot like a Vietnamese pot belly pig. And um, so a smaller yes. breed, but uh, we chose those breeds because um, of their foraging abilities. I mean, these pigs have an incredible ability if you give them the opportunity to not only uh, forage and make a living out on the land, they get a supplement of a uh, non-GMO and organic feed from here in Colorado. But if you give them an opportunity, man, they can learn to graze and to forage for so many different things that uh, you'd never imagine. I mean, those pigs will select some sage, they'll select acorns and, and pine nuts, and they really will use their instincts and their intuitive behavior to uh, be pigs and to uh, kind of use the gifts that God gave them to go out there and uh, oh, yes. and do their thing. And so we um, are having a lot of success with a cross of those two because uh, being more heritage breeds and, and rarer breeds, they grow a bit slower. And so um, yes. for our ability to market these pigs and get them to, up to weight, not as fast as conventional pigs, and that's not our goal uh, right. in that six-month right. range or eight-month range. But if we could get them to finish in 12, 14 months as opposed to 14 or 16 months, that's a big difference for us. And so we're the, the cross seems to be growing beautifully and very, very hardy. They put on a nice winter coat and we'll, we'll keep them up in the woods until we get some decent snow and then oh, yes. take them down. And their winter housing is on deep bedding where we um, have borrowed from the Salatons again, but uh, layering in grain in that deep bedding. And then those pigs turn that over and from anaerobic and aerobic compost throughout the winter and then that goes back out onto the fields and so it's um anything we can do to uh have the entire loop closed at, at every step of the life cycle of oh, the yeah. animals is um what we're shooting for and do you prefer one breed over the other as your maternal breed or do you find them pretty equal well, we've uh, never had any Cooney Cooney sows. This will be our first batch. There's oh, okay. only two of them. And so uh, we'll see how they do. But the Mangalitsas are absolutely incredible mothers. Uh, you do um, Actually, we found that they do better farrowing um, out in the woods. Uh, and they will actually, we had one sow uh, early in the spring. They hadn't gone out to their summer pasture yet up in the woods. And she jumped out of her pen went up into the woods and made just the most beautiful nest. I mean, it, it, it just bring you to tears, oh, yes. honestly. It was incredible to see the just deep, innate behavior of this animal who knew exactly what she needed to do. And oh, she, yes. she raised up a, a nice litter of piglets, and then we walked her back down to be with everybody else. And um, <laughs> she was awfully content and I think pretty happy that we, we left her alone there for a week or so. And I just checked on her daily just oh, to make yes. sure everything was all right. But we've got some predation in this area, uh, serious predation, quite a bit in mountain lions and coyotes and foxes and anything that'd like to have a piglet for food. But man, she raised those piglets oh, up yes. and it was a beautiful thing. Oh, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. Do you have... You mentioned predation. Do you have livestock guardian dogs? We have livestock guardian dogs with the uh, poultry and with the sheep. Our sheep flock is going to go to a more seasonal flock uh, because <clears throat> we got a lot going on here. And so I'm trying everything I can do to use fencing strategically to get the flocks 
to get the sheep flock and the, the beef cattle herd together oh, for yes. the day for the daily moves. And um, so the livestock guardian dog, we can just kind of keep her with the poultry primarily because uh, we found that those sheep being in with the beef cattle uh, is a pretty good deterrent. <laughs> so um, yes, yes. And, and there's always a, the with the, the laying hens coming in behind everybody. The 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 we have Pyrenees and um, so Polly, our our guard dog, she's never far behind. But oh yes. Anyways, we do have quite a bit of pressure. We've uh, this part of Colorado has think about. I'm not quite sure how many years ago, but uh, less than a decade ago, the Fish and Game did a study on population of mountain lions here in our area, and uh, we had one of the densest populations in the entire state of Colorado. And so there, there's certainly cats oh, wow. here, and um, quite a bit yes. of coyotes and foxes and um, bald eagles, golden eagles. You know, it's it's just it's a stunning landscape. We don't mind it one bit, if I'm going to be uh, honest with oh, you, right? Because um, it's it's our job as as farmers and ranchers to figure out how to work with nature and the wildlife to me and to our family here is a is a great sign that we're moving in the right direction when we've got coyotes and foxes and i see bunnies running around that is a good sign to me when i see oh, when yes. i see mountain lion tracks and i uh see a bunch of deer and elk on the place that we didn't see 3 years ago that's all a good sign it comes oh, with yes. new challenges but uh they're welcome challenges right yes and you're moving your your cattle and sheep daily how how's that working you're using a poly reel and you mentioned that you uh, want to move them together using multiple wires. How's that working for you? Yeah, so we experimented this past year putting the, the, the flock and the herd together. And I was using three strands of poly wire. And there's permanent fencing on either side. That's on one side is woven wire. And on the other side is three strands of uh, aluminum 14-gauge uh, hot wire. Oh, yeah. And we found that that worked quite well. And uh, that was just, but that was just on the irrigated ground. and. Um, and so this past year, we did have the sheep in netting, uh, kind of bouncing them around a couple small leased farms that we have. And that works well uh, for us. And the cattle, when the sheep aren't with them, are just on a single strand or two oh, strands, yes. depending on how uh, rambunctious the calves are feeling. And oh, so, yes. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> but it works well. And the, the, so for the growing season, they're moving daily. And then uh, we like to take a little bit of time off in the winter. And so we move cattle and sheep about once a week in the in the off-season on stockpiled forage. Oh, okay. And how do you manage for that stockpile forage? Well, we're constantly trying to utilize the water when we do get it. And so on our irrigated ground, we are trying to grow. And really, uh, as, as a rule, we're trying to grow as much biomass as possible. And some more temperate parts of the country, you can really keep those plants in a vegetative state. And on our, our irrigated ground, we can do that for about one pass, keep it in a vegetative state. But I've found that in our country, with temperamental nature of our uh, precipitation, we really have to be managing for as much biomass as possible. And so we try to get let everything on the dry ground throw a seed head and so that we can get all that laid down on the ground as cover to reduce the bare ground. And then we can come back normally in the late fall into the, into the winter on what has been now a, a second, or sometimes if we've had enough water, a third regrowth of now standing stockpiled forage, that's all thrown a seed head and is ready to be grazed throughout the winter. And are you able to stockpile enough forages to grow, to graze throughout the winter or are you running 
how to stockpile forages before spring gets here? Well, it's been a balancing act. We, as since we're doing all direct marketing of uh, the meat products, we've, um, and that's been going quite well. We've increased the herd quite a bit this past year after a year where we did have uh, 140% of normal snowfall. So we did have a bunch of forage to feed all these new animals. Oh, yes. And so we were feeling good about that. And then we destocked and harvested uh, about 25 of those head. And so now moving into this winter where we had the third driest year on on record, we got much less stockpiled forage, but I think we'll be able to um, make it through with feeding only about 60 days worth of hay this year. Oh, very good. We, we've been lucky enough to pick up some leased farms around us that just really people's backyards, you know, the, a lot of places oh, around yes. us. Mancus is an interesting town. It's an agricultural community for sure, but there's, there's quite a bit of families around us. And so we've got neighbors on all four sides of our house here. And, um, and each, each one of those neighbors has about 20 acres, 20 to 40 acres. And so those places don't have much fencing on them, but they've got a lot of old rank feed that's been growing up over years and years of primarily brome grass. And so we've been able to lease some of those and put fencing in and pick up some extra stockpile that we otherwise wouldn't have had to be able to save us on some hay feeding and get us back to that 60 days worth of feeding hay this year. So it's a, it's a dance, but we're making it work. Very good. You're finding hidden value there in those backyards, basically. It takes some work. There's a lot of uh, quite large uh, conventional cattlemen around us. And so as a result, a lot of the larger acreage ground is, is taken up at, in leases. And so we've had to get creative and try to, uh, and I think it comes from, uh, you know, some of our training in permaculture and holistic management and uh, seeing value in all land and how can, what, what does, what sort of animals are meant to be on that place, you know? And, and so yeah. wherever I see a five or 10 acre field, I say, Hey man, if I could get some fence around it, I'll walk them down the road a ways and, and get them on it for a week or two weeks. It's, it's worth it to me to put that not only for the feed value, which is a big deal, but the community value and the relationship value that that's invaluable. You can't put a price tag on that. Oh, yes. Forming those relationships is um, never time wasted. Very true. Very true. With your cattle and sheep, what breeds are you using for that? And are you grass finish, grass finishing them? Yes, yeah, so we are entirely a grass-based operation. The cattle are um, primarily Angus and uh, low-line uh, Angus, Aberdeen Angus. Okay. Um, we've also got some uh, uh, a few different Longhorn genetics in there, and there's some Hereford genetics as well. Uh, kind of honestly, whatever we could find that's in the area. And um, <laughs> yes, and the the sheep are Katahdin. We used to uh, raise wool sheep, but we switched to the hair sheep and have just. Uh, we will never look back. We love raising the Katahdins and uh, just a great sheep. Yes, very good. Yes, I, I have Katahdins as well, and they amaze me with their easy going. They seem, let me get my S's out, they seem to stay fat on nothing. <laughs> it's true, and they... Um... I've found that uh, for, especially for our management style and being able to run them on poly wire and, and not have to use the netting is a, a oh, big yeah. advantage. And um, a hair sheep, they, they'll get, they'll react to that fence a little bit quicker and easier than a wool sheep will. And so, um, Oh yes. But like you said, they're great mothers, very easy going, just a great sheep, but uh, we wouldn't trade them for the world. Very good, Scott. Oh, one thing I didn't ask you about was your watering of animals as you move them 
through their paddocks. How are you managing that? Do you have enough natural water sources or? So on the, the dry ground, um, there is an incredible network of ditches where that the old uh, surveyors laid out, you know, during the Depression era, uh, big uh, oh, yes. government-led works projects. They put in uh, big dams all over the country and same here down in uh, southwestern Colorado. And so back in the 40s and 50s, they laid out a quite impressive network of ditches on contour. And so we have uh, a ditch on contour that we're able to access for our uh, livestock watering. And we, we design our fencing around that to be able to have live water during the growing season on our oh, dry yes. ground, which is um, a huge bonus uh, for the hogs. Oh, that would be. For the uh, cattle on irrigated ground, have risers uh, that are pressure fed. And so we just uh, do a three quarter inch adapter off of a, a, a big two inch riser that um, when it's not watering cattle is uh, running our side roll irrigation system. And so, uh, okay. uh, so we uh, can pretty easily have uh, water wherever we, we need it on the irrigated ground. And um, for the hogs, we uh, have a trailer with a 450-gallon tank on it with a little cut-out piece of a hose and a hog water nipple on the end of it. And they, they do just fine. That, that tank will last them about uh, that whole uh, time, uh, a week to 10 days. And so um, oh, they've, yes. got, they've got water on demand, and we just move that trailer along with them when we move their feed and, uh, and we move the herd. And so, yeah, that's our watering system. But we're really trying to even more so get into more passive watering systems, putting in some ponds in strategic places uh, to be able to store water for winter watering and gravity feeding out of ponds for winter watering. Cause during the winter we are um, primarily hauling water, which is a, which is a job and we don't want to do that forever. So. Yes. 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 I, I encourage you down that path because hauling water gets old. Yes. It, it, yes, it does. <laughs> that is an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Scott, we're at the time of our episode for our famous four questions, the four questions we ask all of our guests. Our first question is, what's your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Well, uh, there's two or three that come to mind, and one of them doesn't have to do exactly with grazing grass, but I think it provides a great paradigm through which to view grazing grass and that's the one straw revolution by masanobu fukuoka and i would say with regards to grass management and uh, farm management i i love alan savory's holistic management textbook which is really ask yourself the question of how do you want your life to be and uh, that's valuable no matter what we're doing and so it's that is a timeless resource here for us and then also uh thoughts and lessons from an old cattleman, uh, Gordon Hazard. I think, um, yeah, oh, Gordon yeah. Hazard uh, provides probably the most straightforward and just true, capital T, true way to ranch profitably. And um, you don't need many bells and whistles, but if you got livestock out there uh, grazing grass properly, it, uh, you'll be able to do this for a long time. Very good selections there. What tool could you not live without on your farm? Oh, uh, stay fix fault finder. Easy. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's a uh, simple little remote. You just put it on your uh, your hot wire, and it'll tell you 
wherever uh, you got a fault in that hot wire and um, and how many volts you're running. And so on our farm, we the place that we own now is pretty underdeveloped, not much fencing on it. And we back up to the mountain, the mountain's not fenced and the only fencing is kind of along the county road where we live. And so everything else is hot wire. And so I'm constantly going to different strategic spots on the farm and checking to make sure that we got spark. And it's not, it's awful nice. If we don't, it'll tell you where the fault is at and how much power you're losing. And so um, it makes fixing a pretty quick, easy job. Very good. And you're using a stay fix energizer. Yes. We've got a here when we're at the home place, we've got a 10 joule uh, energizer just hooked into the grid. And then when we're, um, Yes. If we're bouncing them around on any leased ground, we have a portable, portable uh, three joule stay fix energizer that I hook up to a car battery and, and just keep oh, swapping okay. those out as need be. But we're able to keep, uh, if things are all running right, we're able to keep uh, eight to 10,000 volts uh, in the system at all times. Oh, yes. And for your hogs, do how how much voltage do hogs require for them to respect the wire? Well, it depends on the pig and some of them, um, <laughs> yeah. some of them get awfully smart towards the end. And, uh, the, the man, we had one, uh, beautiful, uh, she was kind of golden, uh, had like blonde hair and she, she figured out how to jump two wires, the uh, fence. And I had never oh, seen yeah. anything like it in my life, but mostly, I mean, you got to keep it about 6,000 volts for the hogs, but I'd say about 70% of them, once you get, once they hit it once, they'll never test it again. They won't even walk near it if it's laying on the ground. Oh, yes. Everybody else, if you keep it tight, you know, you have no issues at all. And so um, it's a great way to raise hogs and it's just about getting them trained up when they're young. Oh, yes. What do you know now that you wish you knew a few years ago or, or you would tell someone just starting out? I would say that number one, don't panic because no matter what wreck you're in, you'll get out of it if you keep a level head. Well, you're going to get out of it no matter what, but you'll get out of it quicker and with a smile on your face if you keep a level head and you just keep going. And I'd say number two, that the outer landscape is a mirror to the inner landscape. And so don't be afraid to look out at your farm and see how that can inform how you can become a better person. And that's been a huge point of emphasis for myself because being first generation, getting into interacting with nature on a daily basis, being a suburban kid growing up, um, nature's had a lot to teach me and um, about myself and uh, a lot to teach me about how to be a better father and husband. And so don't be afraid to uh, walk humbly because um, if we can stay humble, that's how we're going to build humus in the soil. And so that's that's what I'd say to anybody starting out. Excellent advice. And you mentioned being a first-generation farmer. I've got a few generations of farming in my background, and I've been on a farm for years, and nature continues to teach me things. And just when I start to believe I have it figured out, I'm reminded I don't. Amen. It's, uh, I, th- I, I love how I've mentioned Joel Salatin. He's a, he's a, a you know, a, a far-off hero of mine, you know, and, um, Yes, he he has a beautiful quote that kind of sums it up that that nature is uh, an object lesson of spiritual truth, you know, and so that's what she's there to do. She's there to teach us how to be better people. And if um, we're working awfully hard out here trying to raise animals right and try to take care of the land right and try to keep grass grazed properly, we might as well become better people while we're doing it. Very true. Very true. Where can others find out more about you and your farm? So you can find us at uh, sacredsongfarm.com. 
My wife keeps a beautiful Instagram and Facebook going uh, at Sacred Song Farm. And uh, I'm on Twitter periodically at Sacred Song Farm as well. We'll put links to your website and your social media accounts on the show notes. Thank well, you. Scott, we really appreciate having you on here. We've enjoyed it. Thank you, Cal. It was a pleasure and um, hope to talk to you again someday. You've been listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. Subscribe, share. We appreciate it. Until next time, keep grazing. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, Click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. And until next time, keep on grazing grass.